here's Pastor Ed with a brief preview of today's edition of Voice of Faith. Get out on your own, walk out in the flesh, and you will sow discord wherever you go. Get into Christ, walk in the Spirit, and you'll sow unity wherever you go. We must look for the common ground, not the battleground. We must be willing to sow unity rather than conflict. Have you ever tried to do something on your own that was really meant for more people to do? It was difficult and overwhelming, wasn't it? Pastor Ed today reminds us that in our Christian walk, we don't need to be trying to do it alone. That is the design of the church. We will always have other believers to support us and to walk with us. This doesn't mean that occasionally we won't have disagreements, but we must come together on the biggest issue, loving the people that God has created. Now here's Pastor Ed with today's message entitled, Unity. Jesus was the greatest intercessor to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the greatest prayer warrior that ever lifted up his voice to the Father. If you look at the last night before the terrible trial, before the Garden of Gethsemane, or really before the crucifixion, and you listen to Jesus pray in John chapter 17, you hear him pray for himself in verses 1 to 5, and in verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples, for those that were with him, his apostles. And then in verse 20, he does something absolutely amazing. He looks into the future, to the coming generations, and he prays for them. He didn't pray dispassionately. He prayed passionately. He prayed intensely. And he prayed what was most on his heart. Listen to a person's prayers. You learn a lot about that person by listening to their prayers. You know where their heart is, what their thoughts are, what's important to them. Listen to Jesus pray. Listen to what he asked the Father for. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples, the apostles, the immediate group that surrounded him. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe on me through their message. Coming generations down through the centuries, those who would say yes to Christ, pray for us, that all of them, all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me 
and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. Incredible. You've just heard the heart of Jesus. I have it on a good word that Jesus has been praying for me today. It's right here in the book. He prayed that we might be one. He's prayed over the subject of our sermon. That Thursday night, Jesus institutes communion, the Lord's Supper. And then he lifts up his voice in prayer for his church. His church down through the ages. Note what he didn't pray. He didn't pray that we would have a lot of money in the bank. He didn't pray that we would build bigger and better buildings. He didn't pray that the disciples would be, you know, just on the cutting edge of their times. He didn't pray for any of those things. Nothing wrong with them. But what he did pray was most important to him. And I think it gives us a glimpse into what he in heaven is praying today for his church. He prayed for unity. No, not uniformity. Didn't mean that we're going to march into this church all with the same Bible in our hands. Some of you like the King James Bible and some of you like the New Living Translation Bible. Some of you are reading the New American Standard Bible and some of you are reading, well, I guess the message. But he didn't pray for uniformity that we all would look the same and act the same. No, 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 no. He prayed something deeper, far more significant. He prayed for our unity. As you open up that text, as you get into what he said, you look at the foundations of that unity. The very foundations of that unity are clearly set forth in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Implied in that prayer is Jesus' belief in the success of the disciples. For all who will believe in me through their message, through their message. Hmm. There was Peter, shaken like a reed. Jesus had just prophesied over him, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to falter and fail. And before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny me. But Peter saw beyond his failure, his faults, his frailties, to a day where Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would stand on the day of Pentecost and preach a sermon that would usher in thousands of souls. Perhaps when he looked at John the Apostle, he saw this young man as an overseer in Asia Minor with all of the churches in Ephesus and surrounding, hearing and receiving the gospel. 
And that wonderful book that would close the New Testament, the book of Revelation, given to him. Maybe he looked at the empty seat at that table, seat left empty by Judas. And just perhaps he saw a man by the name of Paul, Paul the Apostle. And Paul breaking ground, bringing the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He saw their success. And note what he saw. He saw that future generations would believe the good news. The message. That simple but yet profound message that he would preach. Jesus preached that message. The text says that it was the apostolic message. What do I mean by apostolic? It was the message given to them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. It was a message that Jesus preached by the Sea of Galilee. It was a message that he preached on the city streets of Jerusalem. It was a message that the early church proclaimed on the day of Pentecost. It was simple, clear, but powerful and life-changing. The message that Jesus was Yahweh, was God, and he came to earth in the form of a man. And he gave his life as a sacrificial lamb of God for our sins. And he rose from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. And he one day is coming back. See, that simple central message is the apostolic message. Down through the ages it would be preached again and again and again. And that's the message that changes lives. That's the message that transforms lives. That's the message that makes all the difference. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Now if you were to bring together in a great conference, men from the past and men from the present, men throughout the centuries, great Christian leaders, uh, bring Augustine, hey Calvin, Luther, Martin Luther, John Wesley, T.D. Jakes, Billy Graham. Put them all in one room. It's very likely that they would have much disagreement Zwingli would contend with Luther about communion. Zwingli believes like we do, the right way. <laughs> there you would have people who disagreed on the sequence of events during the tribulation period and prior to the tribulation period. Uh, there you would have Wesley contending with Calvin on Arminianism and, and Calvinism. Uh, you'd have all sorts of disagreements. But in the midst of those disagreements, there would be unity. Why? Because the central message, the life-changing message, the message preached by the Sea of Galilee, handed to the disciples who handed it to their uh, successors. It's been passed down for now 21 centuries. That message that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. That Jesus is the Savior of mankind. That there's no other name given unto men whereby we must be saved. That message would unite all of them. And that's 
what Jesus was talking about. It's a message that unites us, unites us in the truth. What is the foundations of our unity? It's the apostolic message, the apostolic preaching. But there is something in here also. It's a, it's a supernatural unity. Not just uh, an apostolic, but a supernatural unity. The idea is that something happens when people believe. When people believe, a miracle takes place on the inside. In John chapter 1, 12 to 13, it says if we are born of God, we become his children. When a person receives that dynamic, life-changing message, the power of the gospel hits them. They become children of God. He says, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of husband's will, but born of God. When a person comes and meets with Jesus Christ, something happens on the inside. Immediately, they are connected with the past and they are connected with the present and they are tied to the future. They're connected to the past. You read some of the diaries of the great men and women of God. And as a believer, you identify with it. You could feel it. You could understand. They knew the Lord. You meet today someone on the subway in New York City and you just have a quick conversation with them and there's a witness inside your spirit that they know God, that they're born again. What's that? That's something that God creates, a unity that the Holy Spirit brings about. There's this unity that God creates because we become his children. That message has incredible transforming power. There's the same message from one generation to another generation to another generation to another generation. We want to pray for Mike and Rosemary as they go out and their heart's desire is that their sons, Chris and Mark, would know Christ. So today, pray for them. You know, at Mike's funeral, 40 people came and they, and they made a confession of faith and we pray that they'll grow in that decision and follow Christ. But it's the simple message. Whether a PhD at Harvard University preaches that message or whether someone who came from Skid Road and was saved and preaches in the Bowery Mission, it's the same message. It's the life-giving, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. See, that's the message the church has to preach. Whether we are a storefront church or a mega church, whether we believe in some type of high church or whether we're low church, whether we're contemporary worship or whether we're conservative worship, what is important is that the message of Jesus Christ, the message that the apostolic church had and that's been passed down continues to be preached and proclaimed and held forth as a church. Hallelujah. Transformation takes place when we hear that message. Now that's the foundations of our unity. It's inherent in the message. It unites us spiritually. But we have to work at preserving the unity. It's a gift from God. 
We can't create it. We can't manufacture it. It's a gift from God. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer. In verse 5 of Romans 15, we have the idea preserving of the unity. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ. Unity is something that God gives, but we must guard. It's something that God does, but we must preserve. Our carnal nature so works against unity. I mean, look at our world. Someone said every time people try to create unity, they create death. Alexander the Great wanted to unite the world. The Roman Empire wanted to unite the world. There's this desire in the hearts of men to bring unity. You know, I hear so much about a global economy today. I'm not against it necessarily, but real unity comes from God. I do think it is a sign that the coming of the Lord may be very close. And so I rejoice in that. But how do we sustain? How do we preserve? How do we guard this unity? The answer is right in the biblical text. Verse 21. May they also be in us the experience of intimacy with Jesus Christ. The Trinity is deep and complex. We can't comprehend that infinite God in our finite minds. But Jesus says that they may be in us. Hmm. A relationship with God that is so intimate that we abide in him. Get out on your own. Walk out in the flesh and you will sow discord wherever you go. Get into Christ, walk in the Spirit, and you'll sow unity wherever you go. We must look for the common ground, not the battleground. We must be willing to sow unity rather than conflict. Listen to the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus in John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. To abide in Jesus is to obey him and to obey the Father. To walk in the commandments of love. That's not easy. Whenever you endeavor to abide in Christ, you'll have the character of Christ. When you abide in him, you'll reflect him. You'll emanate him. And Jesus is a unifier. He prayed for the unity of the church. He asked the Father that great passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, he humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of a man. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. 
See, real unity comes when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We're abiding in him. Uh, That means I'm willing to do it God's way, not necessarily singing, I did it my way. That means when we are walking with Christ, we're going to go the extra mile we're going to reach out we're going to build bridges not burn bridges and sometimes it's easier to burn bridges because we've been hurt but we're to be controlled by what motivated and controlled Jesus now notice experience intimacy with Christ if you're close and walking with Jesus you can't be in the throne room of God in the presence of God and come out of that and stab your brother in the back can't do it You can't rip the unity of the church without ripping the heart of God. And if you're close to his heart, you won't even consider it. Intimacy with Jesus preserves the unity of the church But something else, the experience of God's glory in Christ is right there in verse 22. It jumps out of the text. Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I've given them the glory that you gave me. Jesus began his ministry in glory and ended his ministry in glory. In John chapter 1, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. Jesus prayed. As he looked at the cross, Father, glorify your name. See, he saw suffering as a way of glory. See, when we take our suffering, when we take our pain, when we take our struggles, and we all give it to Jesus, and we say, Lord, somehow in the midst of this, be thou glorified, something happens. God is honored, and people are drawn closer to him. Glory means the beauty, the splendor. And the beauty and the splendor of God is displayed while in the midst of suffering we humble ourselves and say, God, here, I offer this as an act of worship to you. Glory is seen in the miraculous and the supernatural. Jesus speaking to Martha said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he is dead, yet Will he live? Do you believe this? And then when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, didn't I tell you you would see the glory of God? We need this theology of suffering and we need this theology of the miraculous because in both of those, God is honored and glorified. The difficulty sometimes is we want to lean to one theology or the other without living in the midst of the tension of it because we don't always understand how God performs miracles. We don't always understand why God does what he does, but he's bigger than us and I don't have to understand him. I can serve a God and allow God to have mystery because I recognize I am limited in what I understand. I recognize that God can receive great glory through suffering. He can receive great glory through the miraculous, but my main passion, my burden is that he be glorified. And when he is glorified, people see the beauty of Jesus. They see the splendor of Christ and they have drawn to him and there's unity as a result. I've given them my glory. If you're listening today and you've recently placed your faith in Jesus, 
This has been a perfect message for you. The Gospel of John is one of the very best places in the whole of the Bible for new believers to begin studying. And it's not just for new believers either. For those of us who have walked with Jesus for some time, it's always a wonderful reminder of who we're following. You've been listening to Voice of Faith, the radio ministry of Dr. Edward Jones of Faith Assembly in Poughkeepsie, New York. Now we want to encourage you to log on to voiceoffaithradio.com and spend some time getting to know us. There you'll find today's message. The only thing you need to remember is today's date. Again, to stay current with what's being broadcasted here on Voice of Faith and to access an archive of messages, log on to voiceoffaithradio.com. Or if you'd like, you can always give us a call. Our number is 845-462-5955. That's 845-462-5955. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We invite you to join us again for the next edition of Voice of Faith. On behalf of Pastor Ed, Faith Assembly, and the entire production team, we want to say thank you for joining us and come back next time for another edition of Voice of Faith.